How many of you are um, New Year's resolution makers? Any of you like that? How many of you have never made a New Year's resolution in your life? How many of you used to make New Year's resolutions, but you got so tired of breaking them that you resolved to never make another New Year's resolution? That's most of us, yeah. Well, if you've been tempted to make any resolutions for this year, I, I do have a little collection of New Year's resolutions that I hope will inspire you. Take a look at these. Um, here's a cat that says, option A, lose weight. Option B, buy a bigger basket. And here's a woman who says, my New Year's resolution is to stop putting my foot in my mouth all the time. I'll bet yours is losing weight, huh? <laughs> Woo! I don't always make a New Year's resolution to exercise more and lose 10 pounds, but when I do, I forget about it when Girl Scout cookies come around. I can relate to that one. Here's someone who said, my resolution was to read more, so I put the subtitles on my TV. My New Year's resolution is to stop procrastinating. I'm not starting until next week, though. <laughs> That's a good one. My New Year's resolution is to stop hanging out with people who ask me about my New Year's resolutions. That's a, that, that's a good one. And I like this little cartoon. What exactly is a New Year's resolution? It's a to-do list for the first week of January. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And there's actually something called Quitter's Day. Uh, it happens on the second Friday of January every year because apparently that is the day when 80% of those who made resolutions have given up on them. But whether you're a resolution maker or not, I'll bet that you have at least one goal for 2024. I'll bet that you want to be happy. You may not have written it down, but you want that. Everybody wants that. Um, it, it, it's, it, it's actually something that God himself wants for us. That's something that we've been learning throughout the month of December, that, that God cares about our happiness. In fact, there are more than 400 references to happiness and joy in the Bible. And if you look them all up, you actually can come up with a very doable list of ways to catch joy. So far, what we've learned um, can really be boiled down to two basic ideas. The first is to look up, because happiness begins with the decision to delight in God and in all that He has promised us. Those who enjoy Him and who set their mind and their heart on eternity are the happiest people on earth, regardless of their circumstances. That's what the Bible teaches. And the second secret to catching joy is to look around for ways to give love away. Ironically, it is when we trade self-centeredness for self-sacrifice. When we, when we stop focusing on ourselves and instead find ways to make life better for others, that God blesses us with deep down happiness. Now, everything else that I've found in the Bible about catching joy, I'm going to talk about today. And I put them all under the big idea of looking ahead, partly because it just sounds good. Looking up, looking around, looking ahead. I kind of like that trio, but actually, uh, more importantly than that, all four of the principles that we're going to talk about today would make great New Year's resolutions or goals. Um, if you do any one of these four things in 2024, then I promise you, actually God promises you that you will have a higher level of joy. And if you do all four this may be the happiest year of your life.
Now we're going to start by looking at Acts 16. If you have a Bible, that's the passage to find. Um, and I know that most of you don't bring Bibles with you to church these days. I'm looking right down the aisle and see a couple people that have their Bibles open. I love to see that, and I'm hoping to see that a lot more um, in the next few weeks. We're hopefully going to start a new book study next Sunday, and I'm going to be encouraging you to actually find your Bible wherever it is and to use that instead of your app because I think there's real value in that. Um, And I'll be talking about that later on. But today, if you have your app, your White Pine Church app, it's there too. You can just Tap on that Bible button, it'll take you right to Acts 16, and all the other passages that we're going to be looking at are there as well. The book of Acts is kind of like a highlight reel of what happened when the first followers of Jesus were empowered by the Spirit of God to take Christ's message from Israel to the ends of the earth. And chapter 16 tells us about the ministry of two missionaries, Paul and Silas, in a Grecian city called Philippi, where they encountered fierce opposition. Uh, When their ministry began to reduce the demand for fortune tellers, they were severely beaten, and they were thrown in a dungeon, and their feet were locked in stocks. And that night, the Scripture says, at about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. See, he knew that He was facing the death penalty for allowing this jailbreak, and he was about to hasten the inevitable. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We're all here. The jailer called for lights. He rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He he then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? That is, what must I do to be rescued from your God's anger? and wrath? That's a question that all of us need to ask because the Bible says that every single one of us is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. And depending on God's verdict, we will spend eternity in either paradise or punishment, in either heaven or hell. So what must we do to make sure we end up in heaven? That's the most important question anyone can ask. And the answer that Paul and Silas gave to the jailer was certainly not what he expected. I mean, you ask anyone who has never heard what Jesus taught, if there is a heaven, what does a person have to do to go there? And what will they say? They'll say, they have to be a good person. You can't screw up, at least not too much. You have to do more good than bad. And the problem is when we think that we have to be a good person to get into heaven is that we have this tendency to grade ourselves on the curve. We think that as long as we're relatively good, as long as we are above average, we'll be okay. But God doesn't grade on the curve. Jesus said there is only one who is good. And who is that? It's not you. 
It's not me. It's God. All of us fall short of the standard of goodness as God defines it. All of us sin. And no resume of good deeds can change that. But the good news that Jesus brought and that he commissioned his disciples to share is that he did for us what we cannot do for ourselves. He died on a cross to pay the penalty for our sins and then he rose from the dead. And and please listen, maybe you think you know how to get to heaven and when you think you know, you don't listen to somebody who tells you something different, but listen to me. It is faith in Jesus rather than faith in ourselves that gets us into heaven. That's why Paul and Silas replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. In other words, it's the same for everyone. Any person of any age who puts their trust in Jesus will be rescued from punishment and welcomed into paradise. It's a free gift. How great is that? You don't have to earn it. You don't have to lay awake at night wondering whether or not you've done enough good because it doesn't depend on you. It depends on Jesus. Just entrust yourself to him, Paul and Silas said. And then they spoke the word of the Lord to the jailer and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. Uh, Baptism, that's the way that the Bible teaches us to express our faith in Jesus. It's by submitting to a cleansing with water that symbolizes that supernatural removal of moral filth in our lives. And then the jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. Now look at this. This is the point they were getting to. He was filled with what? With joy. Because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household, he felt this indescribable joy of knowing that he and his loved ones were going to live forever, not because of anything good they had done, but because of what Jesus had done for them. So if you came to church today, or maybe you're watching from home and you're listening to this, and, and you, you've been thinking that your eternal destiny depends on whether you succeed or fail at obeying God, if that's your mindset, you have not yet experienced the relief and the joy that comes from just accepting the grace of God. Believe in Jesus wholeheartedly. Stop trusting in yourself. Let him save you. Do that one thing and you will experience more joy in 2024 than you have ever felt before. Now, let's go left in the Bible. Just one book to the Gospel of John. We're going to look at chapter 15. This is a chapter that records what Jesus said to his closest followers on the night before he died. And it contains another secret to joy that I think is going to sound a little strange at first because we just learned that our eternal destiny does not depend on whether we succeed or fail at obeying God. We learn that, our, that joy comes from abandoning the performance plan and embracing the gift of God's grace. 
But it's important for us to understand that that's only step one in our spiritual journey. Because at the moment that we stop trying to earn our salvation and we accept it as a free gift by believing in Jesus, at that instant, God puts his Holy Spirit in us so that we have the supernatural power to obey him, to do all those things that we couldn't do before, hard as we tried. And what happens when we access that power and we choose to do what we know God wants us to do? Well, look at what Jesus said, beginning in verse 9 of chapter 15. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now, stop there. Let that sink in. Jesus loves you as much as God the Father loves him. Wow. Now he says, remain in my love. This love that I have for you, oh, I want you to feel it. I want it to be real to you. I want you to live there. I want you to make my love your home. Do not wander off looking for something better because there's nothing better. Okay, but we ask, how do I do that? How do I remain in the love of Jesus? Well, keep reading. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in His love. Now look closely at verse 11. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. So what do we have to do to experience the same level of joy that Jesus felt? What do we have to do to enjoy the love of God as much as Jesus did? We have to keep his commands. You saw it there, right? Complete joy is what Jesus gives to those who obey him fully. Now, if you keep reading in this passage, you'll see that the command that was most important to Jesus was to love each other as selflessly as he has loved us. That was his supreme command. But it wasn't his only command. So you may feel like you're doing a pretty good job of loving others the way God wants you to, and yet... If you're honest with yourself, you would say, I'm not really experiencing the joy that Jesus promised. Why not? Well, could it be because there's something else that you know God wants you to do that you're not doing? Sometimes it's something that he wants us to do that we're not doing. Sometimes it's something that he wants us to stop doing, but we're not stopping we're continuing to do that. We, we, we wander away from Christ's love through our own compromise, through our own disobedience. And if that's what you're doing right now, then no doubt you are feeling some friction because God always pursues his lost sheep. Maybe you have a guilty conscience that you've been ignoring. Maybe a friend has taken the risk of trying to help you Get back to where God wants you to be, but instead of repentance, you have chosen resentment. How dare you call me out? 
My question for you is, are you joyful? Is this working for you? Psalm 97 says that joy shines on the upright in heart. Proverbs 29 says that the righteous shout for joy. Ecclesiastes 2 says to the person who pleases him, God gives happiness. Jesus said in Luke 11, blessed or happy are those who hear the word of God and obey it. So if you want maximum joy in 2024, you're going to have to believe that. You're going to have to believe that purity will make you happier than impurity. You're going to have to believe that generosity will make you happier than greed. You're going to have to believe that forgiveness will make you happier than holding that grudge. You're going to have to believe that submission to authority will make you happier than rebellion against it. You're going to have to believe that the purpose of God's commands is to keep you under the waterfall of His blessing and His love. So don't, don't deflect this, please. I know that there's somebody that God wanted me to say this to. You might be sitting in this room. You might be sitting at home. And, I, you know, you, nobody has to, I, I don't have to suggest anything more because you know what the issue is. It, you've known for a while. I would just say if there's any pocket of compromise, please confess it. Make that U-turn so that God can restore to you the joy of your salvation. Now, if you turn one page to the right to John 16, you'll find a third way to catch joy. In fact, joy is really the key word in verses 20 through 24 of John 16. Remember, Jesus was talking to his disciples right before his death. He knew how, how heartbroken, how grief-stricken they were about to be. And so he said, verse 20, very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. Why? Well, because of his death, which will feel like victory to the opponents of Jesus and defeat to the followers of Jesus. He said, you will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come, but when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again. When? Well, 72 hours from this moment on the day of his resurrection. And on that day, Jesus said, you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. How could they not rejoice after Jesus proved to him by his own resurrection that the immortality he promised them was not a pipe dream, but something that they could take to the bank? Then he added this in verses 23 and 24, and it's just as relevant to us as it was to the apostles. In that day, he said, you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly, I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask, and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. There it is again. There's the joy we're looking for. Complete joy. Ask and receive. 
See, this is one thing that Jesus made crystal clear over and over and over again in his ministry. He said, you can pray confidently. In Mark 11, he said, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Wow, what a promise. Whatever you ask. In Luke 11, he said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. And on this, the night before his death, he emphasized the power of prayer again and again. In chapter 14, he said, I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And again in chapter 15, he said, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And here in chapter 16, Jesus emphasizes the joy that we will experience when God answers the prayers of faith that we pray in his name. Now that doesn't mean that the name of Jesus is a magic word like abracadabra. It means that when we ask God for what Jesus would request if he were the one doing the praying and we expect God to answer that prayer, he will. And when he does, our joy will be complete. That's why I want to encourage you to really pray confidently in 2024. But I know, even as I say that, that I'm kind of speaking through a membrane of skepticism. Why? Well, because how many prayers have you prayed before in Jesus' name? Prayers of faith that God has not yet answered. Me too. You probably don't remember this, but on the first Sunday of 2020, I preached a message called Anything is Possible. I showed you passages just like this one in John, in John 16, and I challenged you to make a New Year's resolution to trust God to do the one thing that you most wanted Him to do. Well, 2020 didn't turn out quite like we expected it to. Not many of us look back on that year and say, oh yeah, that was the year that God answered my prayers like never before. Fact is, most of us can't even remember most of 2020. But this past week, I looked back on my notes from that sermon, and one truth that I emphasized was that faith is often best demonstrated by persistence after initial disappointment. We looked at 1 Kings 18, where the prophet Elijah was praying for rain after a three-and-a-half-year-long drought. The sky was cloudless, and, and, and yet he said, there is the sound of heavy rain. He got down on his knees, put his face to the ground, and he began to pray. And at one point, he said to his assistant, go and look toward the sea. He expected his assistant to come back and report that he saw rain clouds on the horizon, that God was answering his prayer. But he came back and he said, there's nothing there. So Elijah prayed again. He said, go back. Same report, no clouds. Elijah kept praying seven times. He said to his assistant, go back. And finally the assistant came back and he said, a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. And before long, the scripture says, the sky grew black with clouds, the wind rose, and a heavy rain started falling. 
James 5 uses that story as an illustration of faith-filled prayer. And how is it that Elijah demonstrated faith? By continuing to trust God, by persevering in prayer, even after rounds one through six produced no results. And in that message back in January of 2020, I also talked about Luke 18 where Jesus said, where it says Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. And then he talked about a widow who kept pestering a judge for justice. He blew her off time and time again, but finally she wore him down. And he responded to her plea just to get some relief. And Jesus said, if a corrupt judge responds to that kind of persistence, will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. And then he added these words, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? See, faith is demonstrated by persistence in our prayers. I'm sure you've learned by now that God does not answer our prayers on our, our timetable. He has his own timetable, which hard as it is for us to accept, is better. So if you will pray confidently for what you know to be the will of God throughout 2024, the day will come. Maybe in this next year, maybe in 10 years, maybe sometime after you die. But the day will come when you will receive what you have asked for and your joy will be complete. Now, I know what many of you are praying for. You're praying for the salvation of someone you love. And you've been praying for them for a long time. And they seem further from God than ever before. And you're tempted to give up. Don't. It's God's will for that person to be in heaven. 1 Timothy 2 and 2 Peter 3 both tell us that. And 1 John 5 says that we can know that if we ask anything according to God's will, we have what we have asked of Him. So you can pray confidently for that person's salvation. As long as you and they are still breathing, it is too soon to give up. I love Psalm 126, which says, those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. And there's one more secret to catching joy that I, I have to show you. It's in multiple New Testament passages. Let me just read a few of these verses to you and you just look for the common denominator, okay? Here's Philippians 4.1. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown Stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. And then there's 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 and 20. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. And one more, 1 Thessalonians 3, 9. How can we thank God enough for you? in return for all the joy we have 
in the presence of our God because of you. All three of those passages were written by the Apostle Paul. And what was it that gave him joy? Well, the right question is not what, but who. Because it was the people that he invested in spiritually. Watching them thrive because of the way that God used him in their lives delighted him. And the same is true for us when we invest in others spiritually. If you've ever done it before, you know this. You can think back and and say, well, what have I accomplished in my life? And you might be proud of your answer to that question or you might feel disappointed. Well, I can't really point to much. But if you start to think about the people that you have invested in, the difference you've made in their lives, joy will rise. It's not something you get an award for. It's not something that you can measure. But there is nothing that is more rewarding. No doubt your spiritual growth has given joy to those who have invested in you. See, all of us can remember people in our lives who came to us at critical times to help us take our next step spiritually. For me, it started with a a woman by the name of Judy. My mom's age. Uh, she was married, had kids in the same youth group that I was in, and she was, a youth, she was a volunteer in the youth group. And for whatever reason, she just decided that she would just let me tell her everything that I was thinking about every subject. And she just encouraged me in my, in my quest for, for, for truth. Uh, hours and hours and hours she spent with me. I never became a Christian while she was there. It was later when another guy by the name of Bob who came and knocked on the door of my dorm room and came in and sat down and took out a three by five card and drew a little bridge illustration to help me to understand what I would have to do to become a Christian. Judy and then Bob made that choice to invest in me. And then there was Dave, my first small group leader, and Steve, the first pastor, to disciple me and the one who has been encouraging me in my relationship with God for 40 years now. And there's Glenn, the one who made it safe for me to confess my sins out loud and who still prays for me when I'm most desperate. And, you know, I was just thinking about about it this week. I don't think about it all that often, but I was thinking... You've used me in other people's lives like that, Lord. And he's he kind of been reminding me of this lately. I bumped into an older gentleman not too long ago. He was here at church. He had moved away but was back for a visit. And just seeing his face and remembering the long talks that we had, and especially the one where I helped him to understand for the first time what Jesus had done for him. He became a Christian on that day. And I don't know how many other people God used to lead him to that point, but I was one of them. And um, I've been spending a lot of time lately helping another young pastor in a very difficult season of ministry that he is going through. And I never know when he's going to call me, but whenever he does, I always try to pick up 
If I can, I call him back as quickly as I can. I am determined to listen to him, to give him whatever advice that might be helpful, but most of all, to pray, not just for him, but to pray with him. That's what I'm determined to do. Every time we talk, I say, can I pray for you? And I pour out my heart to God for that friend. And he is so grateful to me. He's so grateful that God put me in his life at this time. And I just feel like it's such a privilege. It has nothing to do with me. It's just an opportunity that God gave me. On Christmas Day, I, I saw on Facebook this post um, from a friend who used to be a youth pastor in the church that I led. And I went out of my way to spend as much time as I could with this young man. I saw his potential and I just poured as much as I could into him to help him to be a better leader. And now, a long time later, he's the lead pastor of a church in Truckee, California. And this Facebook post was about an event called Christmas in Truckee, a downtown outdoor event where probably over a thousand people showed up. And he preached the gospel to them. And I looked at that and I thought, you know, I have a part in that. Because of the investment that God allowed me to make in his life so many years ago, what a privilege that is. Now, I'm not congratulating myself when I talk about these people. What I'm doing is I'm reminding myself of what really matters in life. It's not success or wealth or fame. It's our impact on other people. That's where the joy is. I'm probably not the only one here whose favorite Christmas movie is It's a Wonderful Life. And I know some people think it's kind of a silly little movie, but I'll tell you what, the message in that movie is really powerful to me. Because I have often tried to measure my life by other things that I've accomplished. And in that movie, that wingless angel, Clarence, reminds George Bailey that what really matters is the difference he has made in other people's lives, and that is so true. That's God's perspective. And I'll tell you, when God gives you a glimpse of how he's using you in other people's lives, it does spark joy. And I know that so many of you are doing this. You're investing in other people spiritually, whether by volunteering to teach kids or hang out with teenagers, or by leading a small group Bible study, or by quietly mentoring someone who needs one-on-one -on -one spiritual guidance, or by, by praying with others on a weekly basis, or by helping immigrants with day-to-day -day challenges, whatever it is, I hope that you feel the joy of knowing how pleased God is with the investment you are making in the lives of others. And if in 2024, God happens to bring someone new into your life that you sense he wants you to invest in spiritually, please do that no matter how inadequate you feel. Because when you do, that person will become your joy and the crown in which you will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes. So here we are just hours away from another ball drop in Times Square. Who knows what the new year holds? Will the war in the Middle East metastasize? Will these still be the United States of America after the presidential election of 2024? Will those things that feel most fragile to us personally hold together 
or fall apart. There's a lot beyond our control that we could worry about. But why not focus instead on those things that we do have control over? Like faith and obedience and prayer and relationships. Let's do those things that God promises will produce joy. Believe in Jesus wholeheartedly. Obey God fully. Pray confidently. Invest in others spiritually. Do those four things, and I'm telling you, you're going to have a happy new year because that's what God's Word says. Let's pray. And Lord, I just want to um, take this moment right now um, to pray for all of those who have heard this message, my friends, and that you will, that you will take these words and make them real in our lives. I pray for anybody who's heard this message who is not yet a Christian. For those that know they're not a Christian, for those that don't know they're not a Christian. I pray that you would give them the grace to understand and to believe that Jesus did everything for them and that you will help them to trust in him instead of themselves. I pray for anyone here who has not been obeying you fully. I pray for those who know they haven't and for those that don't know they haven't. I pray that your Holy Spirit will show them, and I include myself in this, show us any areas in our lives that are not pleasing to you so that we can change that. Thank you that you, you love us enough to do that. I pray for those who have become discouraged in praying for something that is so much on their heart that you would give them the grace of persistence, that their faith would, would, would make it all the way to the day when you fill them with joy by answering that prayer in a marvelous way. May this be a year when you do that for a lot of folks. And I pray, God, for all of us that you would use us, every single one of us. Here we are in our own spiritual journey and there are people behind us. And you, you're sovereign. You put us in touch with those people and I just pray that as that happens this year, as, as these people come into our lives, that you will help us to see the opportunity that is there, to love them like Jesus did and to do whatever it is, whether it takes an, uh, five minutes or it takes the next five decades. Whatever it is, use us in their lives so that they will thrive. Because on the day that we are standing before you, we want to see them by our side and we know that there will be great joy in whatever you have done through us that has helped them. Thank you so much that you want us to be joyful people and you've shown us how to do it. May 2024 be a year in which we experience genuine, deep, God-given joy. In Jesus' name.